I get concerned about people mistaking the goal for a goal. The goal of the entire industry is a safe, legal, regulated industry that's taxed, that allows people to consume what they want in the manner they want without any fear of legal enforcement. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the panels at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. This panel is called Biden Our Time. So our next panel is going to touch a topic that is also lingering amongst everyone throughout the country. We've all watched President Biden make a lot of noise about his latest pardons that really didn't release anybody from prison and really just uh, pardon people that were home already. But don't get me started. I don't want to take you down that rabbit hole but recently right now what we need to know is what does that mean for all the investors in the united states in the world that are patiently waiting to invest in this robust market in new york and in the rest of the country when every time we try to pass some type of safe banking act it gets shot down by the senate and without that People can't get access to capital and the market can't thrive and mature to its full optimization. So to touch on this topic, we have CEO of Cannabis Now, Eugenio Garcia, and Mitch Berkowitz, founder and managing partner of Meredith Capital Holdings. All right. I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you, Mitch for joining us. My family is uh, from Nassau County, Long Island, and I've been coming to New York ever since I was a kid, but I, was, I grew up in Montana, and Montana legalized cannabis back in 2014 uh, when it was super early, and uh, coming out to New York, we were always kind of bummed out that there wasn't good weed in New York, and unless you had to like dodge the cops and run into the alleys or wait in the parking lots to get it. And even as uh, recent as 2019, I was filming a documentary here in New York City about cannabis culture, and the only place that I could go hang out, feel safe, and get weed was at the Happy Monkey, Vlad's place here in, here in Manhattan. That was it. And last night, I flew in, and we were hanging out in Times Square, and you could walk right into a retail shop, and you could buy Stizzy products uh, that were, you know, packaged. You could swipe your credit card walk out and consume the same cannabis that you could consume in any dispensary on the West Coast. The big question is, is that a good thing? It was a completely uh, non-licensed, open to the public, crowded as hell, cannabis shop. And is that good for us? Is that bad for us? Uh, These are the questions at hand today. So we're going to talk a little bit about Biden, President Biden's uh, announcement and what that means for cannabis. But what I'd like to do is give Mitch just a a few minutes to talk about uh, where he is in the space, where he's been, and provide a little context. Because as entrepreneurs, the foundation for the future of cannabis is access to capital and being able to operate legally and having the right investors and partners 
is critical to any business growth. So Mitch, let us know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thanks. First, I think it's a, an incredibly interesting time. I mean, you sit in a room and talk about a new state going live. And I think the panel before it raised a, a bunch of things. I think having been the first operator in several states, I think Gia, I think it was her that made the point, which is is crucial and is something to think about, which is the early operators in cannabis markets have traditionally taken it on the chin with respect to rules and understanding of the respective market. And I think New York, because of the proliferation of the illicit market, is going to be extremely challenging. And um, I'm definitely, there's a lot of optimism. I think uh, Axel kind of framed it up before and, and even before him, uh, Tremaine and Crystal People Stokes. I think when you look at the framing of a market like New York, that has such a, an amazingly sophisticated illicit market. And I, me- I remember sitting in a, in a MedMen pitch years ago, seven years ago, or five years ago, whatever it was. And we asked them what their perspective was on delivery in New York because they had a New York license, one of the original ROs. And Adam Bierman, the, the former CEO, said, we don't really have a perspective on delivery. And I said, this is New York. Like people get delivery of food from eight feet away. Everything is delivery here. And the concept that you can run a dispensary and not compete with how people are already getting their cannabis. And I think New York has done at least a, a fairly thoughtful job of trying to replicate the product innovation and speed and velocity of what is happening in the illicit market. I am, it is very challenging to take subscale operators like the hemp growers and the card program and, and have them be the first competitors against the illicit markets. The ROs are not really competing with the illicit market. You know, medical is really not where the illicit market is transitioning. And so I think uh, Gia's point about taking, you know, those early operators really being the discovery, the, the Lewis, you know, and Clark of the, of the, every local industry is its own jungle that you have to machete through. And I think, um, Hopefully the regulators are going to be, you know, one of the great things about the, the new cannabis industry is that you have professional regulators who've been living in the cannabis industry in terms of that's their focus, right? Five, six years ago when I won my first license in Connecticut, which is now nine years ago, which is crazy to think, or 10 years ago when there were four operators in the state and only one of us got out, we were the first ones up and running for almost a year by ourselves. And there were eight regulators for one operator, right? And so the amount of regulatory, they didn't, it was the person who lost the coin flip at like the Department of Consumer Protection. Now you have professional regulators, you have, you know, legislators involved, you have people who care, are focused. And so I think I'm nervous about that, but I do think that New York has been so responsive. As Axel said, they've been really thoughtful about building this framework. But in terms of, you know, the biggest thing with, with I think, Biden's coming out and saying it. Hold on. Until we get into that, let's just give a little context to to the crowd. I'm not sure everyone knows who you are. Yeah. Uh, Just tell us like what, 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 you know, what your capital group is and the context. You're not some West Coast uh, investor. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not. I'm a New Yorker, born and raised. I was the first licensee in Connecticut where there was only four licenses by law. I am a former lawyer who I think, I think I was one of the first people to really dig in on the East Coast on what were the regulations happening. In the country, I, I was lucky enough to be, you know, best friends with someone who was was getting involved heavily in, in the Colorado market and through my legal training was helping him. And so I was one of the four original operators in Connecticut, one of the two original operators in Minnesota. I finished second out of 350 applicants in Nevada before Nevada had a market, winner in Maryland, 
Pennsylvania, one of the clinical registrants there, which is the, the special research program, uh, West Virginia, Missouri, Michigan, I think overall Merida. So Merida was built to invest in the tech infrastructure, the compliance infrastructure, which if you, if it's shocking that that's what you're hearing about from the people on the stage, the truth is this is a business about compliance. This is a business about rules and following those rules and scaffolding. And the truth is it's extremely difficult. And I think that's where it sounds negative, but the, the truth is there's amazing companies being built. And I wanted to be someone who had been early and seen that there's, you know, the first time I got vape carts, I literally had to sign a contract that said, if we don't deliver the vape carts, you just lose your money. You know, it was, it was so rudimentary and fragmented. And so to see this infrastructure and the sophistication of the people and the passion is, is, you know, it's really like a full, it's for me, it's, it's, everyone talks about how it's a baby. It's not, it's the baby was 2012, 13, 14, 15. This is a much more thoughtful world in cannabis than what we had. And, and to the fact that the president's talking about it. How, how many companies has uh, Merida invested in? Um, so how much capital has been deployed? We've deployed about $300 million in the space. We have a minority investment program, which invested in a school that, that helps justice involved individuals get into the industry in Pontiac, Michigan, Several of the businesses, obviously, we're, we're an investor in cannabis now, Leafly. Uh, we care about the media, the tech, advertising, compliance, helping people who are subscale compete with bigger people through automation and efficiency and scaffolding. So that's always been our goal. And so at this point, I think we're involved in 80 to 85 companies. 80 to 85 companies. Yeah. So on uh, October 6th, 6, when President Biden made his presidential announcement, all of my clients started to call me. All, all, all of my partners, and it was 50-50. Half of them like, oh my God, the president just legalized weed. Like, hurrah, uh, our social media had the highest spike yeah. that it had in three years. Yeah. And then ha half of my calls were, uh, this is toothless bullshit, excuse my language, but they were really pissed. They were like, this is more of the yeah. same yeah. political shenanigans. Uh, what, what, were, what were your conversations like that day? And what's your take on it? Well, is, this, is this substantial change or is this just more baloney? Having been an early applicant and, and someone who's lost applications, and I understand a lot of the angst that people have around the fact that 150 people are getting these dispensaries. in. So I understand that angst. What I would say is having been through a lot of revolutions in the space, my first thought was, it's great that the president's talking about it. I mean, actions speak a lot louder than words. And, you know, I do think that if, why now instead of two years ago? If, if, if it's going to take two years to deschedule it, why not start that process when you had both houses of Congress. So I, I do think, I, I always worry about the political expediency of any speech, right? As opposed to the actions. Uh, but I also think it's a great, any movement is good movement. Any destigmatized. So when a president talks about it, you know, what we've seen over time is the biggest competitor to, I get concerned about people mistaking the goal for a goal. The goal of the entire industry is a safe, legal, regulated industry that's taxed, that allows people to consume what they want in the manner they want without any fear of legal enforcement, to people to operate in space without risk of legal enforce, you know, of, of any negative legal consequences. However, the biggest challenge in our entire industry is what do regulators and legislators do for the people who choose not? to become legal operators. Because we, we all know that the, the time for the war on drugs and criminalization and disproportionate criminality of people of color, all of that, you know, my first thesis in law school was the unfair treatment of nonviolent drug offenders. 
how awful it was. Like people in the eighties going to jail for 30, 40 years for, you know, possession of quantities that probably weren't intent to distribute and how the government was very abusive in trying to layer on more penalties. So it's something I studied for 25, 30 years now as obviously a business operator. And I think any reduction of stigma for this industry. So when the president talks about it, it reduces the stigma. It just does just naturally. And so we always have talked about normalization before legalization. It's something you've heard me say. I'm sure people in the industry have heard me say. And I really think that it gets closer to normalization when people are having these conversations about compliance and stuff. But the biggest challenge for anyone is what do you do when the illegal market that doesn't have lab testing, 280E, which as most of you probably know, especially dispensary owners deal with that primarily, is what do you do when you're taxed at a 70% rate or, or, or more? And you're competing against people who have no rules. And I think, you know, I, I think Axel and the MRTA are, are very thoughtful people. They understand that because they've been able to watch other states. So New York isn't starting from scratch. It's starting with this other knowledge. You know, the people that were on the stage before have been in several states. They're, they're contributing and other people are contributing. And I think when the president talks about it, it makes it easier for people in the industry to move forward. Sure. I, I agree with you. Absolutely. You know, years ago when uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta publicly said, hey, I was wrong, Dude, that was a big true. aha moment. And I agree. I, I think regardless of if you think it's smoke and mirrors or not, the fact that a sitting president has made that move is positive movement, it, positive movement for us all. Will it free up the capital markets? It's been a tough year for entrepreneurs to raise capital, for capital groups to have uh, excited investors. Is this going to create a little spark in, in uh, the moment and help open up the cash flow again? I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges in the space is you have this federal illegality. I mean, one of the great things about the United States system and why the United States has really been the catalyst for a global movement in cannabis. I mean, people think Canada, but obviously, there, you know, Canada as a collective has probably lost like $10 billion scaffolding its industry is because of the federalist system. The fact that states could move forward while the federal government did nothing for years. And so capital, one thing I think people mistake is just because capital could be available doesn't mean it will be available. And I think everyone thinks that there's this panacea of like safe banking and, you know, that there'll, there'll be this rule and just money will flood in. That may happen. But the reality is there is an IRS rule right now that for the last five years people are compl complaining about that is an overtaxation of cannabis businesses and we're in an industry that doesn't need any additional headwinds and the fact that no one everyone talks about these you know big changes safe banking and and potential descheduling rescheduling whatever it might come decriminalization pardons all these things but the reality is there is an irs code that could take small amounts of time to change without legislative change, right? The IRS is allowed to revise guidance. And from the Cole memo to other things that have happened in the space, the government could just say, we are not going to enforce 280 anymore, which would free up thousands and thousands of dollars. And the more, what I've seen in the industry is big operators like the MSOs who do get a bad name. They've invested in smaller businesses. They help in, in Illinois. If you look, the biggest advocates for social equity licenses has been Ben Cobbler and Charlie Bactel and George Arcos, people from bigger operators because they want more access to the consumer. And so they, they're, they're not, they're not, they don't see social equity applicants as competitors. They see them as partners. And I think that's something that this, this, this myth that the MSOs are these big billion dollar companies who just throw money at things. They started out as tiny businesses in a state. They won a license, they grew, they lost money, they risked money, they helped innovate. And I think like 
the, the industry would be much better served if it was more collaborative and not just like a, it doesn't have to be these tiers of competition. I think that the, the collaboration can open up more capital. I absolutely yeah. agree. Who who's responsible for for the future change? I mean, just recently there was a, a very passionate group of individuals at the White House protesting. Uh, one got arrested. Uh, it's great to see that type of activity happening, and, and I think there should be a lot more of it. But it's hard. Uh, we're all trying to just live our lives, survive, come out of COVID, um, uh, build businesses. So, it, is the real change for these larger MSOs, these larger companies who have had success? Do they need to put their money where their mouth is and put, put more pressure on political change and banking change? Have, have they done enough? I mean, we, we try to stay out of the lobbying component because we, we just follow the rules that exist in, in each state. The amount of pressure on, on regulators, as you saw what Axel was talking about before, how much they've done. I don't think, I think stakeholders are on one side. I think people who want to be stakeholders are on another side. I think there's so many competing interests coming into regulators that the regulators really have a hard job. And I think people would, if, if they understood that they might be a little bit more patient, I, I think the point the panel made before about being patient and letting the rules kind of get out there, you don't have to be first to be successful in this industry. In fact, uh, most people that have been early, I mean, I, as one example, in many states, we've made mistakes that maybe it was, we were more fortunate to be a little bit better capitalized because the mistakes you make early are usually pretty expensive. And so... I think the responsibility for changing the rules, it really comes down to, and like the federal side, I think has its own trajectory. I think what New York has done has been amazing. I really do think that the thoughtfulness that has gone into this multi-tier system, like Axel said, this open competitive system where people will get on the shelves. I, again, I think the primary challenge is when you give licenses to organizations that probably have lower margin of error because they're just letter capitalist. So the responsibility, I think New York's taking it on itself to create a structure with the DASNY system or the, the card program where there will be a, an infrastructure. But I do think that community banks and other, like banks, they, they were, you know, Barney Frank pushed banks to lend to minority applicants this, this concept of redlining when it came to mortgages in the 90s. There's only two banks that applied, I think, to even represent the card program or the, the fund. So that just shows you the headwinds. So there's the idealism, there's the pragmatism, and then there's what happens. And I think if if you have a uh, a defined concept of what you're doing, which New York does, it tends to work out better for capital flow and other things. Awesome. So, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Rich. No, my pleasure. Short and sweet. Yeah. Thank you, yep, guys. Thanks. Now you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the fourth of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at cannabisnewyork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.